aside from our update on the ministry, we really want to look at God's word this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And uh, I hope to show you from these verses that missions is every believer's calling. You know, I, I grew up in the church, very privileged to grow up in, in mostly good churches, to be taught God's word at home. And I always had a love and a heart for evangelism. And yet I always thought missions is for someone else, but it's not for me. God has called that person to missions, but he hasn't called me. And God ended up using his word, his spirit, and an experience that I had in missions to show me that I was wrong and to show me that missions is something that every believer is called to. And I, I think you'll be persuaded from God's word this morning as we look at it together that, that this is also true for you. But since we're, we're jumping in right here uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me give you a little background before we read our verses, verses 18 through 20. The church at Corinth was founded by Paul during his second missionary journey around A.D. 52. And if you read Acts chapter 18, you'll find that Paul spent about a year and a half at Corinth, and he stayed in the home of two people that you'll know, Priscilla and Aquila. And Corinth was a very worldly and immoral city. And that immorality and that worldliness had been creeping into the church. There was sexual immorality. Um, there were factions, lawsuits, marital problems. And the problems at Corinth were so severe that people were getting drunk during communion and bringing absolute disgrace upon the house of God. And so when Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, he wrote to address those problems in the church now, we learn from 2 Corinthians 2.1 that between the writing of his first and second epistles, Paul had apparently visited Corinth again. And his, his visit was a painful visit because the Corinthians were not doing well. And it had prompted him to write a letter, which is known as the severe letter. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 2.4. So Paul wrote this letter following his visit, his sorrowful visit, and he dispatched Titus with this letter. And apparently it was a letter of rebuke. And you can imagine if you've ever had to write a letter like that, a letter of correction, a letter of rebuke uh, to, to someone, maybe to a child, you're, you're kind of anxious to hear back. How are they going to receive this letter? And are they going to repent and be responsive? Are they going to be angry? And so after Paul dispatched Titus, with the letter, he waited for Titus to return with a report. And when Titus came with his report, it was a tremendous comfort to Paul because the report was essentially that, that most of the Corinthians um, who were, most of the Corinthians had repented of those things which Paul had rebuked them for, and they even expressed a great affection for Paul and a desire to continue to learn. From Paul. So Titus' report was encouraging on one hand, but evidently it also brought troubling news that some in Corinth were undermining Paul. Some were attacking Paul. They were questioning him, his truthfulness. They were questioning his authority as an apostle. And they were even stooping to the level of personal attacks. 2 Corinthians 
For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Paul had been to Corinth, but a lot of these folks knew Paul through his letters. And there were some in the church, and they're just saying, hey, this guy, yeah, he's a good writer. But when you see him in person, you know, he's really not impressive at all. We really shouldn't be paying any attention to this person. We shouldn't be following Paul. So Paul's primary purpose in 2 Corinthians was really to defend himself. And you might think, well, that's, that's an interesting reason to write an epistle. But why was that? Was it because he was so concerned with his own reputation? No, it was because Paul recognized that an attack on his apostleship was an attack on the gospel itself. And so in defending himself, he was really defending the gospel. And this epistle, perhaps more so than any other, gives us a glimpse into the nature of genuine ministry. Because Paul is contrasting himself with false teachers, and he's saying this is what real ministry looks like. And so this is something that we can relate to from our time in the Philippines because we've encountered false teachers who aren't essentially heretics in their doctrine, but by their lives, they've denied the gospel. And like Paul, they've come at us with some attacks. We've been called liars. We've had our character maligned. Why? Because those who are advocating some other practice will always attack those who are standing firm on God's word. And so as I pick up at at 2 Corinthians 5.18, and please open your Bibles, we'll read together through verse 20. But as we look at these verses, I want you to understand that these words are not just for pastors. These words are not just for missionaries. And as I'll show you, as you will see from God's word, these words are for all of us. And these verses will give us a greater understanding of what it means to serve Christ. They will give us a greater sense of our responsibility to share the good news of Christ with those around us and to make disciples of all nations. So please, as you have your Bibles open, uh, follow along and I will read 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Well, these are verses which are familiar to you. They're beautiful verses. And as we study them this morning, I want to bring your attention to two things in these verses. First, that the privilege of reconciliation, and we'll spend most of our time on this point in verses 18 through 19, the privilege of reconciliation. And second, the duty of reconciliation in verse 20. So as we look at the the privilege of reconciliation, I, I first want to point your attention to the fact that reconciliation is an act of God. We begin in verse 18. Now, all these things are from God. And when Paul says all these things, he's looking back 
to verses 14 through 17, where he's talked about the new nature. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so when Paul says all these things are from God, he is talking about various aspects of the new nature, which he has just discussed in verses 14 through 17. For example, the love of Christ that controls us because Christ died for us. That's an aspect of the new nature. Uh, The ability to know Christ for who he truly is because our perspective of Christ is no longer a perspective which is according to the flesh, verse 16, but it is a spiritual one. The, the, The new nature, the new heart, God's spirit within us, these are all things which are from God. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, reconciliation is one of these biblical terms, theological terms, that we read and we kind of gloss over. Why? Because we've heard it so many times. We we know what it means, but it's easy to lose sight of the profound truths found in a word like reconciliation. Now, this word reconciliation was originally a term from accounting. It referred to the exchanging of coins or the balancing of books. So reconciliation presupposes something, doesn't it? Reconciliation presupposes that there is a problem which needs to be addressed. In accounting, it presupposes that the books are out of balance. The books are in the red, and we need to reconcile the books. In this context... Reconciliation presupposes that a breach of relationship has occurred. What causes a breach in a relationship? Of course, we know that the answer is sin. Isaiah 59.2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Our sin creates a separation between man and God. So there's a breach in that relationship because of sin. What what happened in in the Garden of Eden? What was Adam and Eve's relationship like with God? It was one of peace and of harmony and of familiarity, and they walked together and spoke together in the garden. But what happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the fruit which he had forbidden? What happened? They hid themselves because a breach of relationship had occurred because of their sin. Think even even of Jesus, our Lord, when he took upon himself the sin of the world. In that moment when Jesus bore upon himself not the penalty of his own sin, but the weight of the sin of the world, he suffered a momentary breach of relationship with the Father And what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this this makes sense when we think about our own relationships, doesn't it? When we wrong one another, there is a breach of relationship, and we need to reconcile with one another, don't we? But that's not what Paul says here. He doesn't say that God and men 
needed to be reconciled to one another. He says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. You see, God doesn't need reconciling, does he? We are the ones who need reconciling to God. So reconciliation is an act of God. It is accomplished by God, and it is accomplished on God's terms. And this is what separates the gospel of Scripture from every false religion in the world. Did you know that there's a lot of truth, or there is some truth in almost every false religion? What is it that every false religion has in common? It's a recognition that a problem exists in man's relationship between himself and God. And religion is man's effort. It's man's answer to the problem of enmity with God. It is his attempt to reconcile himself to God through his own good works. That's almost every false religion. But the gospel of Scripture is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to reconcile sinners to himself. Sinners, as Pastor Joe prayed this morning, who were his enemies, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 11. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now, when we are offended, we are often reluctant to reconcile, aren't we? When we are offended, we are reluctant sometimes to forgive. But it is not so with our God. Remember the parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. The prodigal, the son goes and squanders his inheritance, and he returns penniless to the father, and what might, how might a father respond in that situation? The father might respond, oh, you foolish son, how foolish you have been. You have squandered your inheritance. And the son's, the son's words to his father were actually humble words of recognition of what he'd done in repentance. Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. You know what the father might have said? He might have said, you know what, you're right. You're no longer my son, but you can, go, you can go work down with the pigs. But he didn't, did he? What was the father's response when he saw his son returning from afar? How did the father approach the son? Do you remember? He ran. He ran, and he placed his best robe on his son and a ring on his finger, and he slaughtered the fattened calf, and he threw a feast. And that is a picture of God's reconciliation of sinners to himself. You see, the way that we tend to reconcile with one another, sometimes we sweep things under the rug, don't we? And we do this. Well, I forgive you, but I don't have to like you. I forgive you. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. But I'm, I'm going to avoid you now. And I'm going to always make sure I'm sitting on the other side of the church. But I praise God that his reconciliation of us to himself is not that way that it's not a sweeping of things under the rug. It's not just kind of politely bearing the hatchet, but it's two things. It is a removal of all hostility, a removal of all hostility 
and the granting of the full privilege of a son. Full restoration, full reconciliation, and this kind of reconciliation comes from God. Second, I want you to see that reconciliation comes at a price because while reconciliation is free to us, it is not free because it says that God reconciled us to himself in verse 18 through Christ. And those two little words, through Christ, tell us that our reconciliation to God came at Christ's expense. It came at his expense. We read this all throughout the scriptures. Colossians 1.19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through what? Through the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus... You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Reconciliation, our reconciliation to the Father comes at Christ's expense through his blood. So reconciliation is only possible because somehow, somehow through Christ's blood, God chooses not to count our trespasses against us. And that somehow is called the substitutionary atonement, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And substitutionary atonement means that Christ was offered in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. And it is because Christ has satisfied the penalty for sin that Paul is able to say in verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Isn't that one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture? That for those who believe in Christ, he does not count our trespasses against us. You know Psalm 103 verse 12 that says he has removed our sins from us as far as what? as far as the east is from the west. I love Isaiah 30, 18. He has cast our sins behind his back. He has placed our sins behind his back so that he looks upon them no more. And when he looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that's reconciliation. Reconciliation of sinners requires God to pay an unpayable debt to balance our books, which were hopelessly in the red. Now, that's not in our nature, is it? It's not in our nature to forgive a debt. If someone has wronged us, we may harbor resentment towards that person for years. I have seen people take that kind of resentment and bitterness to the grave. Why do we respond that way when when God has forgiven us so much? I think that we remember transgressions against us because it gives us the upper hand in our relationship with someone else. It gives us something to hold over their head to remind them and to justify anything that we anything any wrong that we do toward them because, well, you wronged me first. 
I praise God that he has not treated us in this way. Colossians 2.13. He has forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. By his blood, Christ has atoned for all that created hostility between us and God. And God has reconciled us to himself through the blood of Christ. So reconciliation is an act of God. It comes at a price. And third, the task of reconciliation has been given to us. Again, returning to verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Allow me to make three comments on this. First, this is for every believer. It's for every believer, not only for missionaries. We know this elsewhere from Scripture as well. Um, Ephesians 4, 11, And he gave some as pastors and teachers, not all, but some, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, from this verse, what is your pastor's primary responsibility? Who is prime? Excuse me. Who is primarily tasked with the work of ministry? Your pastor's responsibility, according to this verse, is to equip you for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. But you, as a congregation, you as believers. You have that responsibility to do the work of the ministry yourselves. So in 2 Corinthians 5.18, when Paul says that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, who does he mean? You, You might be tempted to think he's talking about the apostles. Paul is saying that God has given the apostles the ministry of reconciliation. You know, it was Titus who had sent the letter to the Corinthians and returned with the letter. And so maybe, maybe Paul is talking about himself and Titus, or himself and Titus and Timothy, his missionary companions. So what does he mean when he says God has given us the ministry of reconciliation? Well, let's look at verse 18. Because the word us appears twice in this verse. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Who's the us? It is we who have been reconciled to God through Christ. That's the us. All these things are from God who reconciled us. It's everybody who's been reconciled. It's every believer. Would you agree with that? This means yes. Do you agree with that? See what we're saying here? God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave who? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, who's the us? It's us. It's the same us. It's we, the people of God, whom God has reconciled to himself. It's all believers. So everyone whom God has reconciled to himself, he has entrusted with the ministry 
of reconciliation. So when we read in Matthew 28 that the mission of the church is to evangelize the world, that command isn't directed at me or at Pastor Joe, but it's directed at all of us. It's directed at you. And a third thing on this, or a second thing, it is a gift and a joy. This ministry of reconciliation, it's a gift. It doesn't say God has given us a burden or a chore of reconciliation. God has given us a task of reconciliation. No, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And I find that many Christians shy away from this responsibility. Would you agree with that? I can see people starting to shift in their seats a little bit because you're getting uncomfortable because evangelism is one of those words we hear and we're immediately convicted because almost every single one of us realizes I'm not being as faithful in that responsibility as I need to be. But the, rec- the, the ministry of reconciliation, I hope that you will learn to look at it not as a chore, not as a burden, not as just something you feel guilty over, but as a gift and as something which brings joy to your hearts. Have you personally seen someone come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope you've been able to experience that. There's nothing, there's nothing more joyful in this life than to see someone come to an understanding of the gospel and to come to repentance. You know, we're, we're so eager to share good news, aren't we? I got a promotion. You know, I got accepted to Princeton. Uh, the Giants won, you know. That's not news that we just keep to ourselves. And yet somehow when it comes to the greatest and most joyful news that the world has ever heard, we keep that one under wraps. Now to share the gospel it's hard sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes um, sometimes you feel like you're not equipped, and that's why it's hard. Sometimes you feel like um, you're not sure how someone's going to respond, and by sharing Christ with them, you might lose that friendship, and it's hard. And God recognizes this. Apostle Paul recognizes this, and that's why he has not left us without a weapon or without a tool in this ministry of reconciliation. What is it? What's the tool God has given us? He's given us his word. Verse 19, he has committed to us not only the ministry of reconciliation, but the word of reconciliation. Have you ever noticed that when you try to share the gospel with someone, that the wall goes up? Or they begin to hold you at arm's length. Um, I love to share Christ on the, on the plane, especially when we're home on furlough. We, we fly from time to time. Uh, and I'll just share Christ. Well, in L.A., I shared Christ with our Uber driver on the way to the airport. Um, but I've noticed people are very generally warm and friendly and willing to talk to you about almost anything. Family, vacation, work, weather, politics, sports, you name it. Most people... Most people are friendly. Most people talk to you until you mention the B word, the G word, or the C word. The Bible, the gospel, or Christ. And the moment you mention one of those words, they become very uncomfortable and very sleepy and very disinterested in talking to you. And you look over in the seat next to them and suddenly they've grabbed the paper out of the 
uh, you know, out of the seat in front of them, and they're reading it upside down, and it's just obvious that they don't want to have a conversation with you at all about the gospel. Now, why is that? It's because people in our culture have heard it so much, their hearts have grown cold and hard towards the gospel. And they have learned how to keep you at arm's length and how to not allow you to share Christ with them. And they have all these, these phrases, these things. I mean, some of them are kind of trivial. That, uh, you know, you start to share Christ with someone, they're like, well, yeah, but where did Cain get his wife? <laughs> and they think, you know, they're just so proud of themselves that they think they've thrown you an impossible question and that just blows up, you know, everything. It blows up the gospel. Uh, or they'll say, um, well, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. You know, and, and they're very pious about it and very, you know, and they sit up and puff their chest out a little bit. And they think that lets them off the hook for the fact that they stand condemned before God. <laughs> and you just want to shake them and you say, it do- I can tell you where Cain's wife came from, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> You're on your way to hell. Wake up. Hear the gospel. But when you encounter that and you encounter someone that resistance Remember that the word of God is your tool. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When there is that resistance and when that wall goes up, God's word will pierce man's heart in a way that nothing else So learn God's word, learn to use it. And then just briefly, I just want to point out that reconciliation is not only a privilege, it's also our duty. It is our duty. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. It is not a matter of choice. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been reconciled to Christ, you are his ambassador. Now, when you think of an ambassador, what comes to mind? Let me point out two things. Number one, an ambassador is a messenger. An ambassador is a messenger, and an ambassador is a representative of the one who sent him. So when we bring the message of reconciliation to the world, we are no mere errand boys because it is God's message. It is God's message. We come in God's name as representatives of the courts, of the court of heaven. And that lends us authority, doesn't it? But it also reminds us to be mindful of our conduct. Why? Because we represent our king. And everything that we do, every word that we say, is a reflection upon him. In John 17, Christ is praying to the Father. He's first praying for the apostles, and then he's praying for all of us, all who believe in him. He says, I do not ask, John 17, 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. And Christ is praying for the testimony of the church. He's praying for the unity of believers. Why? 
so that, he says, the world may believe that you sent me. You see, when we have unity with one another, when we love one another, the world looks at that and they say, there is something supernatural at work here. And when you share God's word with them, God may open their eyes and show them that what is supernatural, which is at work within us, is God himself. And our love, our conduct, give people reason to believe that the gospel is true. So we are God's representatives. And lastly, we go with his entreaties. Looking one more time at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Now, this word for appeal does not mean a request. Okay? It means a strong and an urgent call. And I think sometimes our evangelism lacks urgency. Not only do we not share Christ enough, but when we share Christ, we don't share with the passion that we ought to have. But when we urge men to be reconciled to God, it is as though God is extending his own personal summons to them. And that should give us great power and boldness in our witness, shouldn't it? It was what allowed Paul in Romans 1.16 to say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This is God's word. This is his message. This is truth, and we should not be ashamed of it, and that should give us boldness. He goes on to say, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Not just, well, this is what I believe, or why don't you think about this? But it is urgently pleading with men for the sake of their souls. Be reconciled to God. It's, recon it's recognizing what is at stake, that men's souls are at stake, and it's recognizing that we are God's ambassadors. And this is his message, and we are his representatives. And that is our duty as Christians. Now, there is a hidden duty here as well. There's a duty of the one who has been reconciled to God, but there is also the duty of the one who needs reconciliation because there is something inherent in this appeal that although reconciliation is a unilateral act of God and that it has been fully accomplished and paid for through the blood of Christ, it is still something that needs to be received by faith. And there may be one here today who has never entered into a peaceful relationship with God. Maybe you've been going to church for years. You've heard the gospel many times. You know the truth, but deep down inside, you know that your relationship is not right with God and that you still need his forgiveness. And if that describes you today, we beg you, we beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God today. Put your faith in Christ. But for those of us who have been reconciled to God, remember that you are an ambassador for Christ. You are his representative. You are his messenger. And we must be the gospel in shoes. 
Some of those shoes will travel thousands of miles. Some of those shoes will travel right here locally in this community. But we must be the gospel in shoes, the visible proof of an invisible truth. And the gospel must always be evident in the way that we live, but it must also always flow out of joyful hearts from our lips. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Christ that through him, through his blood, you have reconciled us to yourself and it is all of grace. God, we thank you for the privilege of being your sons and the privilege, Lord, of being part of your ministry of reconciling the world to yourself. Lord, I pray for this church. Keep them faithful to your word. Lord, I pray that you will give them Increased boldness, Lord, to share the good news of Christ with those around them, in their families, in their workplaces, in their communities. And we pray, Lord, your protection upon them and your great blessing upon them until you shall bring us here again. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.